requisition me a beat. When I was poor, there was a hurricane in Kingston Town. We'd all put in a half of water. Everyone was alright, but I cried all night. It blew my alphabet blocks out of order. And they say, this boy's born to be a bureaucrat. Born to be all obsessive and snotty. I made my friends and relations file long applications to get into my 10th birthday party. But something changed when my man turned pro. I was sorting, but I... Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Podcast. This podcast is a subsidiary project in my American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Now in that podcast, I examine American writers using the Library of America as my source material. That project will not be stopping and will be released alongside this podcast, which will explore the works of Philip K. Dick in detail. Over the following weeks, I'll be examining almost every work published by Philip K. Dick. Now, I'm, not, I'm going to keep this site or this podcast on my Podbean account for American writers because there's a cost associated with that. And, you know, I don't want to open up a separate account, but I'll, I'll keep, have different episode numbers and a different title. So it will be sort of separate within that um, within that podcast. I was thinking about how I would do this when I originally announced this project, I thought I would go over about 100 pages at a time. I think I will still do that for the novel, spending two and, and rarely three episodes per novel. Most of Dick's novels are about 200 pages. They're all pretty short. But for the stories, I decided I, it will be most useful to readers and to listeners and students of Philip K. Dick to get a separate podcast for each story. This will give me time to look at each story, to consider some of its consequences for Dick's overall ideas and its relevance to our life today. Um, why do this? Why do this? Simply, the reason I'm doing this is I think that Philip K. Dick's works have never been more relevant. And while, I mean, I'm not saying he's the most relevant writer who ever, who ever lived. I, I happen to like him. I've happened to study him in great detail. But I, And I do think he has a lot to teach us today, um, more so than maybe any other writer from the 50s and 60s. He really speaks to us directly in ways that are almost uncanny. Um, I don't think he's a prophet. I don't think he's a mystic. I don't think he had any sexual connection to truth. He just turned out to be a very good prophet. Um, just maybe by chance, maybe he saw things, uh, maybe he was just lucky. Maybe what he saw in the 60s and 70s and the 50s, you know, hits us directly. I don't know what it is, but there's something about his work that really, you know, reflects our condition today. Uh, and while I've written extensively on Philip K. Dick, I wrote a book about him called Philip K. Dick and the World We Live In. Um, I have had a, a blog where I looked at basically all of Dick's stories and a few of his novels. Um, but I'm hoping that this podcast will help get my ideas out there and help support my my you know my my hundred pages project as well. I also think that Dick is more culturally significant than ever before. We have a new Blade Runner movie coming out. And of course, Blade Runner was based on one of Philip Dick's novels. There's an ongoing TV series uh, produced by Amazon.com on The Man in the High Castle. And there's an upcoming anthology series, um, which will be hosted by Brian Cranston. And I think that's going to look at a lot of Philip Dick stories. So in some ways, I want to get a, you know, to release things as that comes out. I hope to be a resource for people who are new to Philip K. Dick or for people who want to look at him in, in new ways. I, I have a very particular point of view about 
Philip Dick's works um, that is different than a lot of people who have commented on him. So I hope to explore that in, in detail. My format will be just a little bit of background in each story or each novel, followed by a summary of, of the story, which will be combined with analysis and themes the same way I do it in my 100 pages cast. Finally, I will talk about why I think this story can be significant to us, giving some comments and reviews. And I'm hoping to get guest speakers from time to time. I, I know people who have studied Philip K. Dick. I'm in some Facebook, a Facebook group. So I'm hoping to pull in some of those people from time to time to get them to share their opinions on these stories. So it's not just always me that you'll be hearing from. For those of you who do not know, Philip K. Dick was a science fiction writer active in the 1950s and 1960s, and to a lesser degree in the 1970s. He died in 1982. He wrote over 100 short stories and dozens of novels. I think it's around 40, maybe, maybe between 40 and 50 novels. He struggled for much of his life to be taken seriously as an author, and he even worked to escape being labeled as a sci-fi writer. He did produce some interesting conventional novels, um, but these were not generally published during his lifetime, and they came out after he, after he died. He made his name in the pulp magazines of the 1950s and through publishers that targeted younger readers. This made it hard for him to branch out into a broader and more mainstream audience. Since his death, he has come to be seen as one of America's greatest science fiction writers, um, at the very least for his ideas, which are amazing and always interesting and striking to us, if less for his prose, which I would say is as good as often it is not. I mean, it, it's a bit of a mixed bag, I think, with his with his prose and his writing. But, you know, he's as good as, at his best, he's as good as any science fiction writers that were active at the time, I think. While writing mostly science fiction, he explores a range of issues such as mental illness, Technology, religion, drugs, cities, crime, relationships, the surveillance state, robotics and cybernetics, and political power. And I explore many of these issues in my book on Philip K. Dick. Um, while many people read Philip K. Dick as a mystical writer who tapped into the hippie culture, hip counterculture of the 50s and 60s, or the beatnik and the hippies, uh, the drug subculture, I think this is a very superficial and limiting reading of his work. Often the focus on the mystical misses the point entirely. And while his work is rightfully labeled often as pessimistic, focused on the worst aspects of the world, I think we can find in him an optimistic vision for the future um, if we come at it with an open mind and come at it with a bit of our own optimism. I'm going to start this podcast by going through the stories in rough order of publication. Uh, when I bump to a novel, I'll probably stop and, and, and do that novel. Um, now, most of Dick's stories were published early in his career, so we can kind of see them as a group. Um, I think about two-thirds of his stories came out in the 50s, even before he published any books, so uh, any novels. So we can kind of go through those stories, and then when his first novel, Solar Lottery, was written, we'll kind of throw that into it and then continue on chronologically as much as possible. For that, we'll need to look at the collective stories of Philip K. Dick, published after his death and reprinted in several editions. It's five volumes. It has most of his stories. It's missing just a handful. It's also not including kind of the sections of novels that were published as short stories uh, and then reprinted in novels. And I, I won't read those either. There's like abridged versions of novels that later got expanded. Um, they're not published in the collected stories, and so I won't look at them. In the first volume, which is currently published under the title Paycheck, 
but was originally highlighting a different story. I think it was the short, happy life of the Brown Oxford, which is kind of a quirky, wonky story. Um, but it tells us something that these books get republished often to be associated with certain films that came out. And Paycheck, of course, came became a film. Uh, now, in this book, there's an introduction by Philip K. Dick, which was reproduced from a 1981 letter. A common cliche about Philip Dick is that he is exposing the falsity of the world we live in, that there is a real existence under us, and we are, in short, in sort of the matrix. But as this letter shows, it's not so simple. Dick's feet are always at least one foot in our own world. Quote, We live in a fictitious world. That is the first step. It is a society that does not, in fact, exist, but is predicted or predicated on our known society. That is, our known society acts as a jumping off point for it. The society advances out of our own in some ways, perhaps or orthogonally, as with the alternate world story or novel. In other words, science fiction explores worlds that are at least partially reflections of our own. Easy enough to agree on, I think. But if we apply this to the multiple levels of reality thesis, we get to a similar place. The world we live in is false, but it's also rooted in truth. Not everything can be a lie. And even when we explore the lie, we are exposing truths. And often I think what he's doing is he's not necessarily saying there, there's like we're deluded and there's a false reality and there's a real reality behind it. It's that the real reality behind the false facade is real, but so is the facade. The facade itself is real. It's part of our life. And I think he's often contrasting two or sometimes three realities that exist at the same time. And I've just written an article for a fan magazine, PKD Otaku, about his novel, The Penultimate Truth, where I say, you know, you have three different cities in that novel. You have the suburbs, you have the slums, and you have the gated community all existing at once. And they're all kind of blinkered about each other's existence to certain degrees, but they are all real. And so it's not so much that there's a false, false narrative about reality. It's just that there's, everyone's kind of blinkered. Um, in truth, I don't know where this matrix theory stuff gets us. Even if we are in a simulation or some sort of false world, my struggles, my sufferings, my anguish, my happiness, all of my emotions and experiences are real enough to me, and I have to deal with them. Let's say we know that democracy is false and that real people are in control our corporations. Does this mean we respond with ennui, with despair? No, Dick actually tells us that we must struggle. But that struggle must be grounded in our world, not in the drug-addled delusions or religious fantasies or madness that so many of his characters find themselves in. So with that out of the way, let's get into stability. It's the first story printed in the collected stories of Philip K. Dick, but it was never published during his lifetime. It was a youthful experiment written around 1947. And the story opens with a scene right out of a Hayao Miyazaki film with our hero Robert Benton flying. But we quickly learn that flight in this context is not necessarily liberatory. He is flying to a meeting with bureaucrats. He enters the office of the controller. We get some exposition for the benefit of the reader. Um, and this kind of exposes Dick at this point as a really young writer where, you know, the characters know the way the world works, but they have to tell us, you know. Um, so it's kind of like, we all know this, but I'm going to say it anyways. Um, it's, it's kind of annoying, but... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just the expo exposition problem. We see it in movies. We see it all the time. But um, it, it does show him as kind of an immature writer at this point. 
but the exposition tells us that society's progress is strictly controlled, so there can be no radical change. Any future progress will be more destructive than helpful, we learn. In fact, progress is no longer possible in any real sense. The entire apparatus of the state is devoted instead to promoting progress, but, it, but not to devoting progress, but to preventing backslippage, to preventing decline. Dick here must be thinking about the rise and fall of empires. The major concern of Dick's career is, the, is or one major concern of Dick's career is the question of imperial decline. Much has been made of this worry, and perhaps much of this worry that the Roman Empire perhaps never fell, and that the oppression of later capitalism is merely extension of the old Roman system. This comes up strongly in his later career. Of course, this is hardly controversial to say that he is right about this to a degree. Our legal system, our Western languages, Christianity, the concept of citizenship, the concept of the citizen soldier, all this stuff comes from ancient Rome. And I also want to suspect here that Dick was exposed to Arnold Toynbee. Arnold Toynbee was a writer of the 20s and 30s, I think, a historian who wrote this massive work called The Study of History. And in it, he's really interested in the rise and fall of civilizations. And his idea is that each civilization has unique characteristics rooted in their environment and the, the place they emerged out of. But once they achieve civilization, they become decadent and begin to fall and decline because they no longer have to struggle with environment. Uh, in some ways, he's very much, I think, influenced by Ibn Khaldun, um, although I, I don't know if that's specifically true if he read Ibn Khaldun, but he certainly talks like Ibn Khaldun, uh, the medieval Muslim historian, in the sense that there is this, this kind of decadence is the cause of the fall of, of empires. Uh, perhaps he was more influenced by um, Gibbon. Anyways, that's Arnold Toynbee. I think you see that here, this idea that our civilization, when it reaches its pinnacle, that very moment is when it starts to decline. Uh, that's a concern here in the story stability. Next, we learn that this state maintains its control over its population to keep stability. Uh, and they use the harshest means available to the state. They cart people away. They prevent inventions from being um, promoted. They do regular testing to make sure that no one is too creative but also, or, and too innovative, but also to make sure no one is potentially disruptive or slips down too far. So there's kind of everyone wants to be in this happy medium. You know, someone who's too creative, too innovative could be a problem and has to be carted away. But anyone who's too stupid and might promote uh, social decline also has to be uh, dealt with. And anyways, Benton learns that they reject his invention. But Benton denies ever having brought an invention to their attention. They show him his submission, his forms, his identifying marks on it. They show him the schematics he presented. And Benton is just baffled by this. So as Benton walks away, confused, we are presented yet again with a massive amount of effort that is just required to keep stability going. We get the image of the bureaucratic office. Um, it seems more difficult to keep stability than it is to make any real progress. And here's how it's described. The offices were gigantic. He stared down from the catwalk on which he stood, for below him a thousand men and women worked in whizzing, efficient machines. Into the machines, they were feeding reams of cards. Many of the people worked at desks, typing out sheets of information, filling charts, parting cards away, decoding messages. On the walls, stupendous graphs were constantly being changed. The very air was alive with the vitalness of the work being conducted. The hum of the machines, the tap-tap of the typewriters, and the mumble of voices all merged together in a quiet, contented sound. And this vast machine, which cost countless dollars a day to keep running so smoothly, had a word. Stability. Here things that kept the world together lived. 
This room, these hard-working people, the ruthless man who sorted cards into a pile marked for extermination, were all functioning together like the great symphony orchestra. One person off-key, no person out of time, and the entire structure would tremble. But no one faltered. No one stopped and failed at his task. Benton walked down a flight of stairs to the desk of the information clerk. He takes his prototype, which they give him, they give it back to him uh, for some reason, but he takes his prototype and he leaves this massive bureaucracy building and he forgets his wings. I don't know if there's some meaning to that, but, he, but it forces him to take a cab. He takes a robotic, robotic cab home. And when he gets home, he takes a closer look at the device. He turns it on and it delivers him to some sort of field he doesn't recognize. We learn pretty soon that this is a time travel device, so he's kind of traveled to a different time. He walks a very long time and starts to hear a voice telling him not to pick it up. What he's not supposed to pick up emerges shortly as a small glass globe. He is told that taking this will disrupt stability, but Benton responds that nothing can really disrupt stability. The voice identifies itself as the guardian of the glass globe, insisting that he should not pick it up without facing harsh realities. He uses the machine, which proves to be a time travel machine, to go back in time to the day before the story began. He hands in the device to the controller for review, and so we have a nice little time travel loop paradox thing. It's not clear to me who invented uh, the time machine or who prepared the schematics. It, it's, you know... Dick kind of works his way around it in the story. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, maybe someone out there knows this, who invented this kind of the time travel paradox? When does it first emerge? I, I don't think it's in Wells because Wells is just going forward. He's not going back in time. So um, if anyone knows who invented the time travel paradox as, as a, in, in science fiction, I would love to know. I, I, I'm pretty much sure it's not Philip Dick here, but... But we see it here. It's like the question of who invented the time machine in the first place is never really fully answered. The controllers figure out that Benton must have been using the time machine because why else would he seem to understand the situation the first time he dropped off the device and the second time he visited the office being completely ignorant about, about it. And they determine that Benton needs to be taken care of to preserve stability. At his home, Benton is warned by the device that the people are coming, that the, the suits are coming to, to deal with them. It reveals a bit of his plan to Benton as well, telling him that it was his plan to get the time travel encounter um, to, to get him to come. And it wants the society and the globe to be released. So inside the globe is like a little city, and it wants that city released. It wants that reality to take over the reality that Benton lives in, and that's going to require it to be released. Um, but first it had to be brought into his time, and that was the purpose of the whole mix. So there's a bit of an AI in the globe, I think, and it's... You know, it's a bit vague. It's not the most well-written story at times, and some things aren't explained entirely here. Now, the men do indeed come to Benton's home and demand he surrenders the time machine. The Globe explains away the non-existence um, of the time machine through some sort of self-correcting time travel paradox science. Um, how do we get it here? It has ceased to exist. This is what the globe says. It has ceased to exist, a non-entity in a time spiral. The time spiral reached its conclusion when you deposited the machine at the Office of Control. Now these men must leave so we can do what must be done. So that kind of explains the way where the time machine went. The men tell him that he is eligible for the cart, which is the story's example of basically being whisked away by the Fred feds and sent to, I don't know, prison labor camp or, you know, killed or whatever. It's just, you know, to the cart, off with you. But the controller only threatens him and tells him that he will be watched. 
But his eyes go to the globe, which he's fascinated by because it seems to be a replica of an ancient yet strangely modern city. He thinks of it as some sort of Mesopotamian city. He's about to walk off with it when Benton tries to seize it back for himself. They fight, he grabs it, and ends up breaking it on the floor, releasing the city. And when he wakes up, he finds the world he's in entirely changed. But he has, seems to have no memory of the old bureaucratic hell. Humanity now instead is enslaved by machines. And here's this scene. It comes right out of Metropolis. It's right out of the um, that, that opening scene to Metropolis, if you've ever seen that film. These, um, he saw the slaves sweating, stooped, pale men, twisting in their efforts to keep their roaring furnaces of steel and power happy. It seemed to swell before his eyes until the entire room was full of it, and the sweating workmen brushed against him and around him. He was deafened by their raging power, the grinding wheels and gears and valves. Something was pushing against him, compelling him to move forward, forward to the city, and the mist gleam echoed to the new victorious sounds of the freed ones. But the sun came up and he was already awake. The rising bell rang, which Benton had left his sleeping cube some time before. As he fell in with the marching ranks of his companions, he thought he recognized familiar faces for an instant. Men he knew someplace before. But at once the memory passed. As they marched towards the waiting machines, chanting the tuneless sounds their ancestors have chanted for centuries, and the weight of the tools pressed against his back, he counted the times before his next rest day. It was only about three weeks to go now. And anyhow, he might be in line for a bonus if the machine saw fit. For had he not been tending his machine faithfully? So that's the end of the story. So, so stability failed, and in failing humanity, becomes slaves to machines. Uh, now, to be frank, there's not much new in this story in terms of science fiction. We have the time travel paradox. We have the bureaucratic society rigidly trying to keep control. We have machines becoming the masters of men. We have the dystopian state seeking total control of our population. We have automation in the form of robotic taxis. We have malevolent outsiders trying to impose their will on humanity. We have the massive inhospitable cities. In fact, many of these things are themes that Dick is going to explore in greater detail in his other works, his novels and stories. For me, the heart of this story rests in the conflict between the bureaucratic and the industrial machine. It is not an overt choice that any of the characters make, but what is important is that their both options are clearly defined as hells. Dick's influence in this story seemed to be uh, Mumford and this concept of the machine, which is kind of the whole institution, the whole system of technology, and Arnold Toynbee's concern about the declining empire. The story is clearly a useful experiment, experiment in writing. The scenes change quickly, giving the reader a sense of locationless at times. Perhaps this is intentional, but it also seems that Dick forgot to put in transitions, or perhaps he was meaning to get to them later. Uh, there's literally points where like, the next sentence is an entirely new setting, so it's a bit um, bothersome as from, from the reader's point of view. Still, I find this a very interesting story for one very important reason, and that is we seem to live in a world, at least in the U.S., where just holding on to the fracturing welfare state is considered political progress. The progressives you know, have some imagination to be sure, but largely they are stuck in the logic of the New Deal. They're, the feeling of political and social stagnation is very real. While we may have many new technologies coming out every day, we have no fundamentally new technologies. We're simply joining or combining old things. The internet is impressive in terms of, of access and speed, but it's not really an advance on the public library in any real sense. The cell phone is a combination phone, video game console, and video player for most people. 
The most striking thing we find in this story seems to be the imaginary, particularly in the bureaucracy in the final scene where we find ourselves, or sorry, the, the most striking thing about the story seems to be the imagery, not, um, particularly in the bureaucracy and the, in the, the huge buildings full of bureaucratic workers with their card readers. And in the final scene where we find ourselves in this industrial hell. And again, I don't think these are original to Dick at the time. Certainly the industrial hell scene comes out of Metropolis. Um, if you go see that movie opening scene, you'll, you'll, you might agree with me. But it, it is really striking. And I, I think it sets up several of Dick's themes very, very well. Um, it's a shame he didn't rework it and publish it during his life. Because I think if he had put some, a little bit of editorial work into it, it really would have been a, a great story. So there, there, that does it. The first episode of the Philip K. Dick podcast, uh, the subsidiary of the American Writers, 100 pages at a time cast. Thank you so much for listening. If uh, you would like to, oh, I appreciate it if you, you know, rate, subscribe, share this podcast with your friends. And um, I'd love to hear your comments and your feelings about this. So thanks again for listening. And I will um, see you next time. We'll, we'll look at... I guess the next story by order of publication is Beyond Lies the Wub. But the next one he wrote was Rug. So I'll just, it'll be one of those two. It'll be Rug or, or Beyond Lies the Wub. Um, both have the claim of being kind of his first story, uh, depending on how you count. So um, with that, I'll see you next time. Thanks. We didn't choose to be bureaucrats. No, that's what Almighty Jamie does. We treat people like swine and make them stand in line, even if nobody paid us. They say the world looks down on the bureaucrats. They say we're anal compulsive and weird. But when push comes to shove, you gotta do what you love.